Hey there, everybody. It's that time again. It's time for Bench Talk, the week in science. I'm Dave Robinson. I'm here to introduce the third and final part of our interview with Professor Frederick K. Hilton. Known to everyone as Fritz, Dr. Hilton was a professor in the Department of Anatomy in the University of Louisville Medical School between 1958 to 1995. He was a successful researcher and also an accomplished artist. Now, if you want to hear the first two parts of our interview with Fritz, check out our episodes of November 21st and December 5th of 2022. Just go to forwardradio.org, use the Programs tab, and look for Bench Talk the Weekend Science. Now, a big part of Professor Hilton's career as a scientist and an artist was centered around birds. And so, to finish off this episode, we have part of an interview with a distinguished scientist about slow birding. But first, Professor Frederick Hilton. Now, you're also a very successful artist. It sounds like you, your love of nature drew, drew you to yes. painting and science. All of these are interrelated. <laughs> I used my art in my work in science uh, to illustrate. Uh, did a couple of books and so forth. Oh, really? I used them extensively in my lectures in anatomy. Oh, your own drawings? Yes. Neat. Now, was it hard to do biochemistry and anatomy all day? And would you come home and paint? Or would you paint on the weekend? Or No, I would sometimes come home and paint. And a lot of times, as I say, I used my artwork to draw. Yeah. In fact, every time since I taught many of the physicians in town, and they all remember, I don't know if they remember the science, but they remember that I drew with two hands at the same time. Hmm. And so if something was bilaterally symmetric... Yeah, on the chalkboard. Yeah, you know, and I would, it's pretty easy to draw uterus and uh, fallopian tubes and everything. Because I dabble a little bit with paint. I paint like a five-year-old, but, but it's just a different mindset for me. It's like there's science is so logical and quantitative and art is so you know, more emotional and it's visual... Well, but you can make that switch. Yeah, I must admit that most of the drawing I did, although I will have to point out, when I was in graduate school, my GI Bill ran out. I got my first year in graduate school. My GI Bill still worked. Mary was working. If you just want to get some idea of the difference in monetary value and what it does... Mary started at Johns Hopkins at $4,000 a year. I, I, Hopkins, longer than you would think, but it was because I actually got an RO1 grant, mm-hmm. a National Institute of Health grant, and I had written my salary in as $5,000. <laughs> I get it. Hopkins calls me up and says, Hilton, we're happy you got this. But you cannot, as a graduate student, make five thousand <laughs> a year. More than the faculty. <laughs> that's what that's what our assistant professors start at. So that's they funny. said you'll have to cut back to four thousand dollars a year. 
Isn't that I funny? said, okay. <laughs> and Mary was making four. We lived like kings. We were young kids making. I painted for the American Museum on Natural History. I painted for Audubon Society. If you subscribed to Natural History magazine, mm-hmm. you got one of my maps. Hmm. You either got Indian tribes of North America, game fish of North America, game mammals of North America. I painted for the Riggs National Bank. So Yeah, so it was always something you did. Yeah, it was yeah, always part of your life. It was part of my life. I enjoyed doing it. You could have made a living as an artist. Do well, you regret that? Tell you, you. Just part of you saying, oh, I should have been an artist in my life. When I graduated, <laughs> Mr. Cotton called me down and he said, Fritz, I would like you to join us as vice president of art at $9,000 a year. Yeah, so you had an offer. And did you consider it seriously? or The offers that <laughs> I had had... Uh, in those days, uh, I had an offer from New Mexico State, Washington State, University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. They all were for $3,500 a year. <laughs> I was holding out because I knew that I was one of the three people they were looking at for a young instructor at Duke. Mm-hmm. That's the one I really wanted. Yeah, great school. I didn't get it. <laughs> But here I was, I'm looking at this thing, 9000 yeah. bucks as opposed to 3500 three times as much money. <laughs> and I finally said to Mr. Cotton, I really appreciate that, I love it, but I've always wanted to be a scientist, yeah. and that's what I'm going to do. I started at U of L. they offered me $5,000, mm-hmm. more than any of the others. <laughs> because when it was a medical school, you usually get a little higher salary if you teach in a medical school. And the teaching load was, I only taught one semester. I had the rest of the year for research. Yeah. They were the only one in those days. You know, they came to visit me. Hmm. Yeah, so they pushed pretty hard. But on my committee at Hopkins, as you might guess, Hopkins, as they do now, they had some of the world leaders in various areas. And one of them, he wrote the biggest book on the physiology of the uterus. He was an MD. And he had just come back from Louisville, and he gave a series of lectures. And I remember Hmm. he made a point. He came and said, you know, Fritz, I just came back from Louisville, and they're looking for someone in anatomy. He said, don't be discouraged. It's an old building, but it's a good department and a good school. I wrote a letter to Kornhauser, and he said, get on the nearest plane and come down. And I did. I went down. He sat down and wrote out my contract by hand, and I accepted it right there. It was fairly close to Penn State, and... My wife was from Penn State. I'm from Harrisburg. It was a medical school. I had had good anatomy courses at Hopkins. I wasn't an anatomy major, but wasn't hard to catch up to the point. Yeah, to make that transition. Neat, and hopefully you haven't regretted moving to Louisville. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had chances to go. 
I had interviewed at the University of Maryland. The University of Maryland called me that first Christmas Eve, and it was the chairman of the Department of Anatomy at Maryland said, okay, your job's yours if you want it, Fritz. And I said, I'm going to stay here. And are you still birding? It's a pretty good place for birding. Well, I don't bird now with my... Yeah, if it's hard to get around, um, but... Up until two years ago, I was very active. Mississippi kites nested Hmm. right up near the tennis courts on uh, Cherokee. Yeah. And that's the first nesting in Kentucky Hmm. since historical times. I did a whole series of paintings on them. How about they're, that? They're at the at the gallery. Yeah, but I'm not a uh, a bird checker. You know, you're a lot not of one people, of these with the lists. And uh, the, uh, birds for me were a a tool to study mm-hmm. some things, the physiology. Oh, I did want to ask you about that imperial ivory-billed woodpecker. Did you see it when you were looking for it in Mexico? 53, Bill Ryan, Walt Kohler, the four of us went down to photograph the Imperial Ivory Bill Woodpecker, and we found it okay. and photographed it. And they tell me, uh, when they, they wrote a book on it, and hmm. Cornell got in touch with me. They found out about it because Dr. Tanner, who was head of zoology at the University of Tennessee, when he died, his wife gave all of his correspondence and everything to the ornithology lab at Cornell. He had gotten his PhD mm. working on ivory bills yeah. in the Singer Tract before World War II. And that was the American ivory bill there. That's the one you asked about. In yeah. The, uh, it's been spotted in Florida yeah. and Louisiana. Uh-huh. But apparently the pictures are Seen questionable. The, uh, what do you think? Do you think that it's the American, I guess, variety or subspecies? I saw the pictures that the guy that found it took. He took it from his canoe. Yeah, I remember. And you see just maybe 15 seconds yeah. or something of this flicking through. It was through. in all the news. It sure looked like an ivory bill to me. Hmm. But Cornell went down. They put years into this. They had tapping devices and calls and everything, and then somebody reported one from Apalachicola or someplace in California, and I couldn't tell. They they really didn't find it. Yeah. I the people was, who decide such things have not decided. Yeah. I was talking to the fellow that wrote the book called Imperial Quest, and Cornell sent an expedition down there in 2005 or six, and they didn't find it, and they said, it's extinct, mm-hmm. and they called me to say, Hilton, you're the last sort of ornithological type to have seen it alive. Hmm. I don't know. I, I was sitting back at our camp. <laughs> we slept on the ground <laughs> painting. And uh, Bill came back and said, there's a female with two young on a log down hmm. just about a couple hundred yards away. And uh, I walked down and I didn't see the young. I saw the adult fly off the log. Hmm. And that's the only sign I ever that's saw. Interestingly enough, the Indians that lived down in the, the valley of the Wacomayas, deeper than the Grand Canyon. 
and there was a lumber camp called Los Laredos. They were not supposed to be lumbering in there, but it's Mexico. They don't pay any attention. Now, all of that is owned by the cartel. Oh. They actually killed one when Cornell went down. So oh, wow. they had to be pretty careful where they were and what they were doing. So I wonder what that yeah. habitat is now. It's fields of poppy. And it's, I've yeah, seen pictures. It's, it's of, uh, decimated then, yeah. yeah. In terms of that We didn't have any of that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very helpful to us. And Bill went down the year mm-hmm. after, and they saw it. But they're dead, so Cornell said, you're the last living one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Indians were using them in a religious ceremony, and they had two imperial ivory bills mounted on sticks. They had painted the bills and the feet bright yellow enamel, so they gave it (laughs) to us. From my research, it sounds like fish and wildlife wanted to declare that species extinct in yeah, the United States. Yeah, nobody's but, seen it. But uh, then someone raised a stink, so it's still up for public comment. Yeah. If you want to make a comment, now's the time, I guess. <laughs> I, I didn't close You haven't nothing. been down there to look? <laughs> Bill went down and looked in Apalachicola one time, but I didn't. And uh, from the glimpse I saw, You know, it sure looked like an ivory bill to me. Yeah. A couple of people from Cornell say they saw one. So I don't really know. I just say, yeah, I saw it for about two seconds, and it looked like it could have been an ivory bill, but I wouldn't stake my life. (laughs) Now, our show, Bench Talk Week in Science, is designed for the general public. Do you have any wisdom for the general public about science or art? I sort of believe that if you're really interested in either one, don't let somebody talk you out of it Hmm. if they say you'll never earn a living as an artist. Hmm. And my advice is if you're a young person and you're interested in science, read as much as you can and try to find someone in your area. If you live in a college town, Find out who scientists, they often have summer programs for young kids or high school kids. Try to find someone. I found Bill Ryan. He happened to be a dentist. I wrote to George Sutton at Cornell, and he would critique my paintings and send them back. So my advice is follow your, if you're a dead set on becoming an artist, Subscribe to art magazines. You can teach yourself. I mean, if you get a modern artist, like puts a roller with a black stripe down, you don't need a lot of... Credentials or education. (laughs) Yeah. No, I would just, as I say, I would follow your own mind and try to get as much help as possible from people that you understand are competent scientists or artists. They're very often eager to help someone. Mm-hmm. So Older individuals would really be willing to help younger. Oh, sure. um, to Some don't, but the majority yeah. would be very happy be to... Honored, uh, really, to help someone. When my wife died... Many people here knew that we were very close. And they asked me if I would give 
art class and we went down. The best place is in the kitchen downstairs. They have good overhead lighting. <laughs> uh, I had 10, 12 people come down and we met once a week. Mm-hmm. And I would show them how to do egg tempera or I'd show them how to do scratch board. <laughs> uh, some of them are fine artists themselves. But no, I just say, boy, pursue what you want to do. Yeah, that's good advice. And it's true, it's very difficult to make a living as an artist. I go to Africa. I did go to Africa with John Banovich. There's his book right down there. He's the best African wildlife painter going, I think. He's also a Miss Fourth and runner-up Mr. America. Pictures, you know, you'd think you never saw an artist that looked like that at (laughs) all. And he would invite four or five artists to accompany him to Africa. We all had to bring paintings and slides. We had a generator, so we'd be out in the Kalahari Desert and show slides. I was the only one that went. I went three times. I was the only one in all those times that really had a permanent job. Yeah. And they all said, the ones that were successful, John's very successful, hmm. and he said, Fritz, unless you can sell a painting for $10,000, hmm. you can't make it. Hmm. Most galleries take 40 or 50%. Hmm. So if you're selling a $10,000 painting once a month, and you're getting 50%, that's 60000 yeah. a year. Mm. Well, you've got a family with two kids mm. ready to go to college. <laughs> you can't do it. You, you can go in debt up to your eyebrows. And how many people are going to sell a painting for ten yeah. grand? How often is that going to happen? I know. I never have. I've sold for calendars and so forth for thousands, but a single painting... John gets 500000 for a single painting, so he can live. But it's, you know. And you were able to integrate your artistic talent uh, into your they job. Were lucky. As a I was the guy science that had teacher. a regular job that I didn't have it then. I was retired when I went to Africa. But they all said, Fritz, you know, you, you can paint, but, you know, you had a job. You didn't have to earn a living <laughs> painting. And. Gosh, now, on the computer, they've got a course that you can type in certain things, and it'll do a painting. You can type in a lion. Yeah. And it will paint a lion that you can't even match. I read that one in the New York Times, and they essentially are saying, you know, their artists are out of date. They're not going to be any mm. artists. I don't believe that, but... That's what they're saying, and they can do it, and there'll be people that do do that. What it does, I don't understand the computer of it, but it has stored in its memory thousands of pieces of other paintings. And if you say, do a lion, it probably has 500 lions Mm -hmm. somewhere, somehow. That it can And they can take that, the computer can take it and (laughs) organize it, and I've seen this stuff they print. My God, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's going to be hard to compete with that. 
And are you still painting now? I do. I paint almost every day. Yeah, that's great. And yeah. you retired so, in the mid-90s, Yeah, right? I so. retired in 95. I was age 70. Mary retired in 95. She so was retired. 70 years old. She retired six months after I did. We were very fortunate. Yeah, you we, retired late, so you must have loved what you were doing. Oh, yeah. Well, Mary... Mary won more teaching awards than anyone ever won at the U of L. She I had, saw that in her, her yeah. obituary. Yeah, she's had 20-some. I don't know whether that's <laughs> true or not, but I know at the time no one in the medical school even came close. <laughs> she was incredible. Yeah, she must have been a dynamic person. So even with you retiring late, you've had 25 years to be able to pursue art. Oh, yeah. No, I still, uh, I did that lion. That's one I've done just the last two or three years. Amazing, yeah. So I continue to paint, and it's an interesting thing. If I write, I have a slight tremor. tremor. I don't write very well. Hmm. But when I pick up a brush and paint, there's no tremor. Is that right? Yeah. How does that happen? I have no idea, but I'm happy that it is. A different circuitry, I I guess. Yeah. And I can't tell a lot of difference from, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I'm painting pretty well, and I'm fortunate. I'm I'm 96 (laughs) years old, and I can still do that. And uh, And your body is telling you to keep doing it. Yeah. (laughs) So I work out every day. Amazing. Thank you. And congratulations for a a wonderful life and career. And thank you for uh, meeting with me. This has been fun. That was Professor Frederick K. Hilton of the University of Louisville Department of Anatomy. Thanks a lot, Fritz. And like I said, check out our episodes of November 21st and December 5th to hear the first parts of this interview. But now, birding. Now, we have permission from the Grox Science Radio Show to broadcast part of this interview with famed animal behavior expert Dr. Joan Strassman of Washington University in St. Louis. So let's hear part of that interview right now. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grox Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Well, birds are all around us, but few of us would slow down to notice them. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Joan Strassman. Dr. Strassman is currently the Charles Rebstock Professor of Biology at the Washington University in St. Louis. She's written more than 200 scientific articles on behavior, ecology, and evolution of social organisms, and is currently a member of the National Academy of Sciences, fellow of the American Behavior Society, and the American Association for the Advancement of Society, and has held a Guggenheim Fellowship. She has penned the new book, Slow Birding, The Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. And Professor Strassman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Land Show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a great book for everyone who has an interest in birds, but maybe doesn't know where to begin to sit down and observe the birds. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. It's a book I've wanted to write for about 30 years. I heard about the slow food movement coming from Italy with Carlo Petrini fighting the fast food movement, and I thought, oh, we should have slow birding as well as slow food, where we watch the birds that are local and learn much more about them, 
Your book is really comprehensive. It goes through pretty much every bird you can imagine in North America. And looking at the different birds that are out there, do you find that you approach the birding differently depending on the bird? You know, I love starting with the soundscape. I love just, if you haven't ever paid attention to birds at all, if you just begin to listen to them and try to, like a young child doesn't learn words before it learns sounds, just learn what the soundscape is like. And then when you learn that, you can tie it to the birds you see. You can use Cornell University Laboratory of Ornithology's wonderful apps like Merlin to actually identify the birds. You can see how differently they behave. So a bird that might look like something but doesn't act like that bird just couldn't be that bird because acting is, behavior is is telling. So just pay attention to the birds and get help from your local Audubon Society and the Cornell apps and it'll change your life. And looking at the behavior of the birds, when looking at them, is there something about their flight, their nesting behavior, the things that, that you to notice? I think it starts just with their foraging behavior. You're going to find sparrows on the ground kicking up seeds, and you'll find robins looking for earthworms on the ground. There's other birds that you find elsewhere. You'll find the blue jays up in the trees or gathering acorns, the Northern flickers will be in the grass-eating ants or up high, pounding on your chimney, signaling to the others. So the behavior really characterizes the bird. And when you see the behavior, you can usually narrow down what bird you might be seeing. One of our commonest birds, much hated, is the house sparrow. And many people realize that they were brought here couple hundred years ago and that they're not native to here. But what people may not realize is that house sparrows evolved right along with humans, differentiating from their ancestors at the dawn of agriculture 10,000 or more years ago. And that we can tell this in various ways. But the thing that I just found really cool was that there's two genes that changed as they speciated from their ancestors, both associated with agriculture, one which gave them a stronger bill and skull suitable for eating our larger grains, and the other was a gene that made it easier for them to digest the increased amounts of starch in those seeds. So like it or not, house sparrows are our birds. There are other birds, of course, that have adapted to our our human society. Cardinals, for example, thrive in cities. Yes, yes. There's there's quite a few birds that, that live in our cities. And good thing, too, because humans are not going away. And uh, the birds that can adapt to living in our landscapes are uh, certainly important. The the birds that we see are reflective of habitation that we have with further out into the wild. Does one encounter different types of bird behaviors that uh, you might not in your own backyard? Yes, yes. A robin in the forest is way more secretive than a robin on your land. And then there's some birds that were thought to be deep in the forest but turned out to be in the neighborhoods, like 
like Cooper's hawks, which we find feeding at our bird feeders, only not feeding on the seeds, but feeding on the songbirds that we've attracted to the feeders. Some people don't like them, but they're the lions of the sky, and they're, they're really a joy to watch. Well, it certainly is a great book, and I certainly hope people will take a look at it, the stories, and of course, uh, develop an appreciation for slow birding. Thank you very much. I do, too. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Joan Strassman. She has penned the new book, Slow Birding, The Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. Dr. Strassman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It was a delight to talk with you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thanks to Professor Joan Straussman and Grok's Science Radio Show for letting us hear about her new book, Slow Birding. And thank you for tuning into our science show, Bench Talk the Weekend Science. This is Dave Robinson signing off, wishing you good bird watching and happy holidays. See you next week.